0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to A Book Nerd and the Bible. My name is Sam, and each episode I compare some of my favorite books to biblical stories to see what we can learn about both. In our show's inaugural season, we are focusing on Jesus before he starts his ministry and the origin stories of some of our favorite characters. Today is the final episode in our three-part series focusing on female characters written by female authors. I started this series because I think it's important for men, myself very much included, to read books by women and try to understand the world outside of our male gendered view. Men only comprise 19% of the readership for the 10 best-selling female authors of all time, and that is frankly an embarrassing statistic. So I am pushing myself, and hopefully other men, to read more books by women to overcome this stigma. Reading books by people who don't share your identity or worldview builds empathy, gives understanding, and can help make you a better person. The final book we will look at in our series is The Bell Jar by Sylvia Flayton. The Bell Jar is the story of the protagonist Esther Greenwood struggles with finding her place in the world in the 1950s as she prepares to graduate from college. Most profoundly, the book details Esther's growing depression and eventual commitment to a mental hospital as she feels trapped by the societal norms and expectations for young women at that time. As our society becomes increasingly aware of the importance of mental health and issues such as depression and anxiety, Sylvia Plate's book seems poignant and incredibly ahead of its time. The Bell Jar was ranked number 85 in the Guardian's list of the 100 best novels written in English, and BBC News listed the book as one of its 100 most inspiring novels. Sylvia Plath would later win a Pulitzer Prize in 1982 for her posthumously published collection of poems titled The Collected Poems. Sylvia Plath's life was the focus of the 2003 biopic Sylvia, featuring Gwyneth Paltrow, and a biography of her by Heather Clark titled Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, was a 2020 Pulitzer Prize finalist. A movie adaptation of The Bell Jar starring Dakota Fanning is currently in production. This episode, we will compare Jesus' temptation in the desert in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4 to a famous scene in The Bell Jar where the main character, Esther, imagines herself at the foot of a fig tree and sees the different figs growing on the tree as different possibilities for her life. Jesus's temptation in the desert is one of the most iconic scenes in all of the Gospels, and a lot of Western literature is filled with allusions to this story. I think comparing it to Esther's fig tree will be a great look at decisions, societal expectations, and conformity. Before we begin our background section, I want to give a warning that I will be discussing some mature topics, such as mental illness, self-harm, and suicide. If you have younger listeners, then you may want to screen today's episode before letting them listen. If you believe that listening to content involving these themes may be triggering or difficult for you, then I will leave timestamps in the show notes for this episode so you can skip straight to our literary comparison. I will do my best during our literary discussion to limit references to these topics, and please feel free to reach out to me on Anchor or Twitter if you have any concerns. Now, it's time for our customary warning. I may discuss some events that occur later in the bell jar, so if you are looking to avoid spoilers, then I recommend stopping here. But society expects you to read the book before you listen to this episode, so be like our two heroes today and just jump into it. With that said, I think we can begin today's discussion. Follow me to the wilderness of Judea and the concrete jungle of New York City for some background on today's stories, and let's dive in. Our two stories today are nearly impossible to understand outside of their contextual backgrounds. These contextual backgrounds give the reader an understanding of the worlds of the writers, and the worlds behind these stories are in a lot of ways what the protagonists are fighting. I will try to keep it brief and hopefully interesting in our background today, rather than the long ranting of all my thoughts that I would like to talk about, but I will admit it's tough. My wife, who already listens to these rants every day and lets me know when I am being my most boring self, should receive a giant thank you from all of our listeners because these are topics I could discuss endlessly and she helped me narrow it down. Let's start our discussion with The Bell Jar and its author, Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath was born and raised in New England during the Great Depression in the 1930s and she came of age during the years of World War II. She was a brilliant student whose writing earned her entry into Smith College, the premier women's college at the time. Plath's family could not afford for her to attend so she relied on scholarships to pay her tuition and fees. While she appeared to thrive in nearly all aspects of her life, she began to struggle with mental illness as her efforts to maintain scholarships, keep high grades, remain popular with classmates, and find a husband in a society that demanded young women marry early took a toll on her. Things reached a breaking point in the summer before her senior year at college. Sylvia was selected to be a guest editor at a prestigious magazine titled Mademoiselle that marketed towards young women. She expected the internship in New York City to be a thrilling experience, but she was disappointed in the work and became miserable. She looked forward to returning home and attending a writing class at Harvard University, but she was heartbroken to learn she was not accepted into the class. These perceived failures led to a dark depression, which was only worsened when her mother took her to a psychiatrist whose botched electric shock therapy only made Sylvia's depression worsen. These events led her to attempt to take her own life, but she thankfully survived. Following this attempt, she entered a private psychiatric hospital where her treatment slowly but successfully brought her out of this dark depression and allowed her to finish her degree at Smith College. The events of this summer, the internship, attempt to take her own life, and psychological treatments, formed the basis for the events in the bell jar. After graduation, Plath would earn a Fulbright scholarship to study in England, where she would meet a poet named Ted Hughes. The couple married and had two children, and for a time, The couple was content as they alternated between teaching at universities and writing poetry. The couple's relationship slowly deteriorated as financial issues and Sylvia's increasing frustration with the gender roles expected of her in marriage caused friction. Their breakup, a result of the previous issues and an affair by Ted Hughes, led to Sylvia moving to a small apartment in London with her two children. Here, Sylvia plates divorce, perceived writing failures, isolation during one of the bleakest winters in London's recorded history, and her ongoing battle with mental illness led her to take her own life at the age of 30 in 1963. Her family, friends, and husband have never agreed on what specifically caused Sylvia to take her own life, and many biographers have put forth their own theories about why it happened. Her death sparked renewed interest in her work, and unfortunately, most of her work is now viewed through the lens of her death rather than the brilliantly creative person that she was. The Bell Jar is Sylvia Plath's only novel, and it was published a month before her death in 1963 under the pen name Victoria Lucas. Like our author last week, Betty Smith, Sylvia Plath used events from her own life to write The Bell Jar. It is an immensely personal portrait of one of the darkest moments of her life, and she published the book under a pseudonym in an attempt to shield members of her family and friends who may interpret her writing to be sharp critiques of their personalities and actions. After her death, the book would be republished in America and England under her own name. It would become a major piece of literature for the women's movement in the 1960s and 1970s, and its unblinking look at how mental health practices, gender roles, and societal conformity affect people make the book a favorite among people of all ages today. The book opens with Esther Greenwood, working for a magazine called Ladies Day in New York City. She has won a one-month paid internship with the company, and she lives at a woman's hotel called The Amazon, where she often spends time with two other interns, Doreen and Betsy. Doreen often flaunts society's expectation of women and chooses fun over work, and Betsy is a hard-working girl from the Midwest who tries to carefully follow the prescribed norms and expectations of a successful young woman in the 1950s. Esther often feels conflicted over which of these friends she wants to be, and in the larger picture, Esther is feeling confused why this prestigious internship is not making her feel happy or successful. One of the early themes in the book is Esther's mistreatment by her current or possibly former boyfriend. I'll be honest, I struggled to keep up with whether Esther kicked this loser to the curb yet when this book started. Esther has been remaining sexually pure for Buddy, which Buddy openly wants her to do, but she discovers that Buddy has had an affair with a waitress. Seeking some form of revenge, Esther accepts an invitation from Constantine, a man who she actually meets through Buddy's mom, weirdly, to visit the United Nations in New York City during her internship. She hopes to use the occasion to seduce Constantine, and I will just say she wants to see where the night will go. Our scene for today actually comes from Esther's date with Constantine. This scene is famous for its brilliant description of feeling like you are limited by time and opportunity in life, and has been quoted many times in popular literature, including in the hit show Master of None. Esther is surrounded by capable people at the UN, and she begins to doubt her place and worth in the world. Here is how she describes her feelings. Quote, I saw my life branching out before me like the green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children. And another fig was a famous poet. And another fig was a brilliant professor. And another fig was E.G., the amazing editor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion, and beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest, and as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, and one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet, end quote. The scene finishes with Esther eating dinner with Constantine and questioning whether this fig tree in her imagination is a result of her hunger or a deeper issue. Turning our attention to our biblical story today, we are going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. In the context of Jesus' ministry, this story occurs right after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and before he calls his first disciples. The Gospel of Matthew was written after 70 Common Era or maybe a little later so probably a full generation after Jesus was alive. The gospel is traditionally attributed to a disciple of Jesus named Matthew, who was a tax collector, but modern scholars believe another individual actually wrote the book. The author is most likely a Jewish Christian writing for other Jewish Christians, and I encourage you to look for allusions to Old Testament or Torah stories when we read our scriptures for today. One very important note for the gospel of Matthew is what is occurring in the Jewish community at the time this gospel is being written. We have discussed the relationship between the Roman Empire and the Jewish peoples of Judea and Galilee, some on this podcast. In a vast oversimplification, after Rome conquered the area in the century before Jesus' life, the empire installed Herod the Great to rule over the area. Many people in Judea and Galilee resented Roman rule and resisted Roman authority, and each time, the Romans would respond with harsher and harsher crackdowns on the region. In 66 Common Era, people in Judea and Galilee finally had enough and revolted against Roman rule. This worked out for a while, but four years later, the Romans would return and pretty much demolish Jerusalem. The saddest moment of this conquest for followers of Judaism was the destruction of the magnificent temple discussed in our last episode. The destruction of this temple was a big deal. The temple was where all of the major Jewish festivals were held and was the most sacred place in all of Judaism. So. What do followers do now that they can't visit the dwelling place of God? Well, one Jewish teacher bravely asked the victorious Romans if he could found an academy for Jewish teachers outside of Jerusalem. The Romans agreed, and some scholars believe, the modern idea for rabbinic training was born. This growing group of teachers would mostly come from a Jewish sect known as the Pharisees, who wanted to place the written books of the Torah as the new foundation for Jewish life. The author of Matthew, who likely lived in Antioch in Syria, directly competed with the Pharisees for followers, and this tension can be seen in the gospel. The author of Matthew frequently labels Pharisees as hypocrites for what he perceives as an overly legalistic take on the Torah, and he writes the Pharisees as the enemies of Jesus pretty often in his story of Jesus' life. It didn't help that in his own time, Jesus was often accused of violating Jewish laws and disregarding the scriptures of the Old Testament, and The new Christian church was increasingly non-Jewish or Gentile in its makeup. In sum, the author of Matthew is writing at a time when his local faith community would be torn over the Pharisees' attempts to create new traditions to keep the Jewish community separate from other communities, and the early Christian church's attempts to gain followers in an increasingly diverse church that might minimize the importance of traditional ethnic Jewish identities. So, what does this have to do with our story of Christ's temptation? Well, quite a lot actually. Matthew, like I'm sure a lot of us, does not have a problem identifying his rivals and enemies with Satan. So, in the story today, think about the way Satan is responding and if they sound like something an overly legalistic Pharisee might say. Pay particular note to Satan's use of the Old Testament in the story. So, from Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, here is the temptation of Christ. Quote, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for forty days and forty nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him along into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and on their hands they will lift you up, so that you do not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him along to a very high mountain. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him. I want to make a few more notes on the story before we start our comparison. The first is that the forty days that Jesus spends in the wilderness, would be a pretty heavy allusion to Moses' 40 years in the desert waiting to enter the promised land, the 40 years the Israelites as a whole spent in the desert waiting to enter the promised land, and potentially the 40-day trial of Noah on his boat. Some scholars believe the author of Matthew is making the statement that God is making a new exodus, like the one the Israelites journey on after leaving Egypt, with Jesus leading the way to salvation like a new Moses, the original leader of the exodus. Further. The wilderness is often seen as a place where one meets God in many Old Testament stories, so it is likely being implied that Jesus is heading out there specifically to meet God. Oddly, in his own time, the wilderness in Galilee was often home to bands of rebels opposing Roman rule and awaiting God's judgment on their oppressors. The description of Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days is filled with allusions that would have made perfect sense to the Jewish community that the author of Matthew is writing for. Let's talk about potential explanations for what the three temptations actually represent. One source describes the three tests this way Matthew shows Satan appearing three times to test Jesus, as Pharisees and other opponents will test him. Here, Satan is a caricature of a scribe, a debater skilled in verbal challenge and adept in quoting the scripture for diabolic purposes, who repeatedly questions Jesus' divine authority. A frustrated Satan finally offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world in his last test where Matthew implies political success and power, such as the Pharisees enjoy under Roman patronage, may evince a pact with the devil, and not, as many of Matthew's contemporaries would have assumed, marks of divine favor. So, many scholars see this as a story of Matthews lashing out at the Pharisees and labeling them as satanic. Another source believes the temptations represent specific and implicitly wrong ideas about what the Messiah would do, and Jesus' rejection of a traditional Messiah. Quote, The three temptations, then, stand for the three popular conceptions of the future kingdom. The mythological abundance of paradise returned to earth, the stones to bread, the regal glory of a Davidic empire, all the world's kingdoms and glories, and the supernaturalistic, catastrophic advent of an angelic messiah. The weird part about Jesus just jumping off the temple like he's playing Assassin's Creed. Many Christians in the Middle Ages believe this to be a story where Jesus has gone to meet with God in the wilderness, and Satan appears to him because he is unsure of whether Jesus is the messiah. They believed it is impossible for Jesus to actually be tempted into sin, so they saw this as an attempt by Satan to determine how much of a threat Jesus really is. There are many, many more takes on what these temptations represent, but I wanted to highlight some popular explanations because the story is, admittedly, a little bit strange. The last thing I will mention is that this story and its implications should be taken seriously. Although the author of Matthew is in conflict with the Pharisees, we should understand that the Pharisees were attempting to preserve their Jewish culture in the massive upheaval following the destruction of Jerusalem. The author of Matthew likely Jewish himself, meant for the story to be helpful in convincing other people of Jewish descent that Jesus was the Messiah. Unfortunately, this story has often been used as a justification for anti-Semitism, its original intent twisted to fit political ideas in later centuries. We as readers need to think carefully about how we interpret these stories, and one reason I believe in these long, possibly boring backgrounds to many people is to help us understand why what we are reading is found in the Bible. Knowing the context of what you are reading gives you a chance to better connect with these stories, but it also affords us an opportunity to combat negative stereotypes and harmful ideas. Okay, I think that is all the background we will need. I'm sorry if that was a bit long, but like I said earlier, these stories are heavily driven by context. So, with the hard work out of the way, Let's dive into the Wilderness of Judea and the United Nations building in New York City to begin today's comparison. In his famous commencement speech, Steve Jobs once said, quote, Your work is going to fill a large part of your life, and the only way to be truly satisfied is to do what you believe is great work, end quote. This advice sounds great when you hear it, but the truth is deciding what work, and to a large extent the type of life, to pursue can be one of the most difficult decisions of any person's life. In our stories today, we find our protagonist in the pains of deciding which direction they should take their lives. For Esther, she is on a one-month internship that should be thrilling for a young woman hoping to begin a career in writing, but she doesn't feel excited and it appears her boss notices. The big boss pulls her into her office one day to confront Esther about her plans for the future. Quote, What I always thought I had in mind was getting some big scholarship to graduate school or a grant to study all over Europe, and I thought I'd be a professor and write books of poems or write books of poems and be an editor of some sort. Usually I had these plans on the tip of my tongue. I don't really know, I heard myself say. I felt a deep shock hearing myself say that, because the minute I said it, I knew it was true. End quote. So, the decision about her future is clearly on Esther's mind when she is going on her date to the UN. Esther's fig tree vision in her mind is clear. She is smart, smart enough to have options for who she wants to be in the future, but she can't decide. A decision necessarily eliminates other possibilities. And how will she know she has made the right one? But now, unsure of what to do, the possible futures are dying on their own. And for her, worse than making a decision and picking just one fruit, is her inability to choose any of the figs and watching them all pass her by. I think almost everyone can relate to this feeling. I think many people relate to this imagery even more acutely as the workforce becomes more and more specialized. Esther is torn between several different fields of work. But now people might even be torn within a single field. Like so many of us, Esther is considering the future and is worried about the person she will be. I think Jesus' sojourn into the desert also represents a period in his life when he is deciding what direction his life will take. Jesus clearly has an extreme response to his baptism by John the Baptist. And while the Gospels make it clear that Jesus and his family are aware of his status of Messiah from an early age it seems that realization is hitting home in this scene. The Gospel of Matthew says the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and one source explains this temptation this way. Satan acts as the obstacle that deflects Jesus from his messianic role. Satan's temptations here have to do with power and address the nature and authenticity of Jesus' mission. Another source spells it out this way. Jesus was informed by a heavenly voice that he was the special favorite of heaven, that is, the divinely appointed agent of the kingdom. The question now was, what was to be the nature of that kingdom? What these sources are getting at is that this story is about Jesus, now fully aware of his status as Messiah in the narrative of the Gospels, determining what type of Messiah he will be. The implication here is that, like Esther and her different figs, Jesus has options about what type of Messiah he will be. The temptations themselves hint at these futures. Jesus can perform natural miracles to return the earth to its original garden by turning stones to bread. Jesus can be a type of superhero, flying around by using his connection to God to show his power by jumping off the top of the temple or things like that. Or he can be a conqueror who restores the dignity of the Jewish people and Israel by commanding kingdoms and armies. These are all possibilities for him and most sources I have read claim that these are types of messiahs that many Jewish people were waiting for. If you read Satan to be more allegorical than real in this story, then Jesus' temptations are remarkably similar to Esther's figs. He is imagining different futures for himself, and the temptations he sees are a way to express his confusion in the desert about what type of person and messiah he should be. One of the most surprising undercurrents of these two stories is the protagonist's response to praise. Jesus has just been baptized, and a voice from heaven announces after the baptism that, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus's journey into the desert wilderness certainly reads as a response to the praise he receives from God at his baptism. Esther is obviously talented enough to win her internship in New York, and she tells us she was, quote, college correspondent for the Town Gazette, and editor of the literary magazine, and secretary of honor board, which deals with academic and social offenses and punishments, a popular office, and I had a well-known woman poet and professor on the faculty championing me for graduate school at the biggest universities in the East, and promises of full scholarships all the way, and now I was apprenticed to the best editor on an intellectual fashion magazine, end quote. That run-on sentence leaves no doubt that Esther is aware of her accomplishments. On a side note, it's also a little weird that she brags about being a narc on other students in there with, like, all the other titles, but I won't dive down that rabbit hole. Esther's confusion about what to do next also seems to be a result of the praise she has received from her academic career. She has been told her possibilities are limitless, and unfortunately, she is experiencing in her fig tree analogy the downside of all that praise. Both Jesus and Esther are momentarily confused about what route to take in their lives as they receive this much praise. The major difference between our two characters is how they react to these moments of crisis. For Jesus, we see him beat back against the temptations posed to him by Satan and eventually cast Satan away. One commentator on this story said that Jesus's clapbacks to Satan are a result of Jesus's understanding he is to be a man of sorrows type Messiah rather than a ruler king. Esther, meanwhile, remains sitting in her fig tree vision. She makes no movement as the figs drop to the ground and rot beside her. We receive no indication that she has made any decision about her future at all in her telling of this vision. Esther's inaction in the face of decision-making stands in stark contrast to the sharp rejections of Jesus to his temptations. I don't think this is a critique of Esther Greenwood, though. It takes a very strong person to admit that they don't know what profession they want to follow in the midst of so much success. It would be easy for her to lie and say she is happy working as an editor of the magazine. There is a real power in admitting this, and Sylvia Plaith deserves credit for writing her own indecisiveness into the story. We all want to be Jesus, met with temptation and confusion, only to discover that we know exactly what type of person we should be in the future. But I think far more often than we like to admit, We stare at our own fig trees, unable to decide what to do next. I think these stories serve as a great reminder of the power we have to shape our futures, and I hope they will give us the confidence to boldly claim the person we will be, like Jesus, and the confidence to admit when we aren't so sure, like Esther. Both responses are totally reasonable reactions to a world full of options, and I think these characters reveal the humanity that exists in all of our responses. Have you ever found yourself unable to sleep in a hotel? That somehow your ability to sleep, which at home is so easy, is now nearly impossible in a different setting. When we leave the comforts of home, we start to realize all the small things that make up our routine, all the small things we do that relax us, even if we do them subconsciously. I don't find it a surprise at all that our two characters are having these moments of decision outside of their hometowns. Jesus has actually walked into the wilderness, away from all civilization, for a spiritual retreat in a sense. This is a rough, mountainous area filled with scrub bushes, and most scholars believe the area Jesus went to was in a rain shadow. Rain shadows are a result of moisture falling in a high area and leaving only dry air to blow in a low lying place. So Jesus is in a dry, hilly area alone in the wilderness. It is here away from the towns he grew up in, that Jesus experiences a spiritual testing and confronts the devil. The Judean wilderness might be about as far opposite as one can go from the thriving metropolis of New York City in the 1950s. Esther, who, like Sylvia Plath, grew up in a small New England seaside town, is thrust into the tumult of the city during her internship. She is staying in a luxurious hotel, but the book has scenes where she feels uncomfortable because she is unaware of when to tip bellhops and cleaners. She visits proper restaurants with the magazine staff, something she has never felt before. She goes to clubs and tries alcoholic drinks she has never encountered. If the Judean wilderness represented a stark contrast to Jesus' normal life, then the concrete jungle of New York City certainly has the same result on Esther. She experiences a similar sort of trial to Jesus as she makes her way in the city for the month. I think the settings of these stories help us understand what our protagonists are going through. The wilderness is an isolated place where rebels and bandits go to avoid the authority of Roman rule. It makes sense that Jesus, who in some ways must feel the isolating effect of being the Messiah, heads there to sort out his own feelings and thoughts about the life in front of him. New York City's roaring atmosphere is also a good fit for Esther's emotions. She feels rushed and watched as she tries to decide the direction of her life. Worse, she too feels a sense of isolation in the city, as she feels no one relates to her growing sense of uncertainty in the world. There is an obvious difference between the two in terms of physical landscape, but both city and desert serve the purpose of revealing how Esther and Jesus have traveled away from home and feel a sense of isolation in their quest to figure out their futures. Beyond simply the settings of the story, the timing of our stories reveals another influence on our characters' emotions. Verse 2 in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Matthew tells us, and after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. This hunger actually sets up his first temptation to turn stones into bread. Now, turning to Esther, after her vision of the fig tree, her date Constantine takes her to a small restaurant near the UN. She says, "Quote, I don't know what I ate, but I felt immensely better after the first mouthful." It occurred to me that my vision of the fig tree and all the fat figs that withered and fell to earth might well have arisen from the profound void of an empty stomach, End quote. Hunger is in part driving the visions and experiences of Jesus and Esther. In fact, both begin to have a much more positive outlook after eating. Esther tells us her dark reflection on her choices in life probably was just the result of her being hungry. One commentator, angry that more people don't use this later quote about hunger, Expresses it this way, Plath isn't presenting us with a withering fig tree as the inevitable end to all young people with promise. She's showing us a young woman in great pain who sometimes forgets to do things like eat. Likewise, Jesus is served a meal after his temptations. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to serve him. Angels feed Jesus as he returns to civilization. I think the word that pops in my head after reading these later excerpts is hangry. A lack of food can make one angry or feel pessimistic. Who is to say that hunger can't manifest in fighting the devil or feeling like you're a failure? Like the quote above, I don't think the fact that these two are experiencing hunger requires us to write off Jesus and Esther's very real fears and experiences. But I do think it can help us to relate to what they are going through. They're hungry in a place they don't know during a pivotal time in their life. That's tough. I think the major difference here is that Jesus headed into the wilderness expecting to find isolation and hunger. But Esther certainly did not expect to find these same results in New York City. Jesus' temptations are a result of the Holy Spirit leading him into the wilderness, per the author of Matthew. So it's likely that Jesus is expecting these sorts of tests. Esther believes she will have the time of her life in New York. Her feelings of isolation and hunger, whether it be for food or fulfillment in her work, were not expected by her at all. I think this helps explain why Jesus has more success in facing his emotions. We often fare better against hunger and loneliness when we know it's coming and can prepare for it. Further, Jesus can leave at any time and return home. I I suppose Esther can too, but if she leaves the internship early, Won't she feel even worse about her prospects? I hope this can give us a much more sympathetic view of Esther. She certainly isn't weak, and admirably stands up to these unexpected emotions throughout the book. I hope these stories can help us understand we aren't alone when we suffer from loneliness in a new place. Journeys away from home can be exciting, but they can also present us with questions about what we want to change in the future. The next time you feel like your life is spiraling out of control, Remember that sometimes what you need is a good snack. A couple of Oreos usually cheers me right up. But I also hope these stories serve as a reminder that we have the strength to face temptations known and unknown, but also gives us the grace at times to see others and ourselves as people working hard to fight loneliness and hunger in new places. The final point that I would like to discuss today is the role of expectation in the stories. Expectations are a powerful thing in our lives. They often lie unseen and unthought of until we run into a situation that violates our expectations. I think expectations are really sitting in the background for both of our characters, and they are one of the main motivators for our heroes. I mentioned this in our background section. But there were quite a few expectations for what a messiah would bring to the nation of Israel. Some thought he would restore the arid and dry land to its original state in the Garden of Eden. If you're unfamiliar with the Garden, just think of any picture you've ever seen of a Hawaiian waterfall, because that is exactly what I do every time it's brought up. Others thought the messiah would have supernatural powers and could reveal the full might of God. And others thought the messiah would be a warrior king, capable of conquering all of earth. All these expectations are different, but they do have one thing in common. They expect a lot. Jesus certainly would not have been immune to these expectations. In an area fraught with political tensions, I'm sure many were seeking someone to save them from the country's trials. I think these expectations are ultimately what drove Jesus into the desert. Jesus needs to get away from the expectations of the people around him to fully come to terms with the type of Messiah he wants to be and he knows choosing a route that varies from the traditional expectations will be difficult. The wilderness gives him the space to realize who he is and formulate a plan for how to go about his ministry. Esther is also bearing the weight of societal expectations. The first fig she mentions, the one involving a husband, happy home, and children, is certainly the societal expectation for women in the 1950s. Beyond that, Later points in the story reveal her mother expects her to learn a skill, such as shorthand, rather than pursuing writing full-time. There is also the sexual purity expectations of her sometimes-boyfriend buddy I mentioned earlier. Expectations exist for her to succeed in the classroom and maintain the scholarships that will allow her to attend school. There is also the expectation of herself to enjoy her internship and be successful. In many ways, The Bell Jar is a story of the unrealistic and harmful expectations we placed on women in the 1950s, all of which still persist in our society in some shape, form, or fashion today. Esther's fig tree analogy, for me, is an expression of her inability to match the competing expectations of her life. The fig tree is a place she can properly mourn the weight she is carrying. The scary and frightening thing of Esther and Jesus' experiences to reconcile their societal expectations is that they're alone in both scenes. There is no one helping Esther to find the fig that looks most appetizing. There is no helper for Jesus to call on in the desert. These two are wrestling with the expectations of who they should be all by themselves. Both protagonists are remarkable in the way they take time to recognize what is expected of them and in their own way inwardly confront the fact that they won't meet all these expectations. In some ways, it also shows how gender permits men to eschew traditional norms in a way women cannot. Jesus can begin a ministry of his own choosing after leaving the wilderness. Esther is in many ways confined to the female roles of her time, and she cannot simply walk out of the internship ready to assume a career she can make on her own. There are certain prescribed places for women to exist in her time, and she feels constrained by this. Her fig tree vision ending contrasts sharply with Jesus' exit of the desert, because she can choose only one fig. Unlike many men in her time, Esther cannot mix and match futures to suit her needs. This is a major reason I started this three-episode series, is to find places where a masculine reader like myself might gloss over something a feminine reader spots readily. I hope to recognize where my identity as a man allows me to sidestep societal expectations in a way that the women of my life would be punished for. These stories exemplify the temptation to conform to what society expects of us. They are invitations to examine the accepted roles of our society and how we can help others find freedom from the roles that confine or limit them. My hope is that these stories provide us the courage to accept that expectations, as weighty as they might be, are not necessarily the best course of action. Let's hope we can find the courage to push ourselves beyond these expectations and the empathy to help others do the same. That is all we have for this week. I sincerely hope you enjoyed learning more about Esther Greenwood and Jesus' temptations in the wilderness. If you are interested in learning more about either story, then stick around past this conclusion to hear some great sources I used to write this episode. Also. I'm starting to share some images on Twitter to help you visualize the places we talk about. So follow me there to keep up with the show and learn more. Next week, we will be looking at the story of an angel visiting Joseph to tell him about Mary's miraculous pregnancy in the Gospel of Matthew. I am still trying to decide exactly which story I will use as a comparison, but I will announce it on Twitter when I have decided. Also, as I mentioned last episode, The plan is to release a show every two weeks now to help me have time to do my research, so be on the lookout in two weeks for our next show. I want to thank you so much for listening, and if you enjoyed this little podcast, then please share us with others that are lovers of books, biblical comparisons, and anything in between. We are just starting out, so we need all the help we can getting the word out. Also, please check out our website at anchor.fm slash booknerdinthebible, or find us on Twitter at nerd underscore bible. You can find the next episode of A Book Nerd in the Bible on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube, or GoodPods. Thanks again, and may the book nerd in you be blessed until we meet again. This week would have been impossible to write without some strong sources. I really hope you will check out some of these great pieces to learn more about the stories we looked at today. For more about The Bell Jar and Sylvia Plath, check out, obviously, The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, now being published by HarperCollins, Sylvia Plath, The Bell Jar and Poems, by Rachel Hogrid Reef from the Writers and Their Works Collection, Red Comet, The Short Life and Blazing Art of Sylvia Plath, by Heather Clark, and The Collected Poems by Sylvia Plath, and Ariel by Sylvia Plath. For more about Satan in the Gospel of Matthew, read The Origin of Satan by Elaine Pagels, The Birth of Satan by T.J. Ray and Gregory Mobley, and The Fall of Satan in the Old English Christ and Satan by Thomas D. Hill in the Journal of English and Germanic Philology. For more about Jesus and his temptations in the wilderness, look at In the Footsteps of Jesus, 2nd edition, by Jean-Pierre Isbo, published by National Geographic. Calvin 33, Jesus in the Wilderness, by Hans Moll, from the book Calvin for the Third Millennium. Enigmatic Bible Passages, It's the Little Things That Count, by Paul J. Akhmir, in, bu- in the Biblical Archaeologist. Jesus with the Wild Animals in Mark One Thirteen, by John Paul Hell, in the Catholic Bi- Biblical Quarterly. The Temptation of Jesus Eschatologically and Socially Interpreted by C.C. McCown in The Biblical World. The Temptation of God Incarnate by David Werther in Religious Studies. The Temptation of Christ and the Motif of Divine Duplicity in the Corpus Christi Cycle Drama by David L. Wee in Modern Philology. Jesus and Isaiah by Steve Moyes in Neo-Testaminica. The Temptations of Jesus by J.J. McGee in The Furrow. And finally, The Wilderness and Revolutionary Ferment in 1st-Century Palestine, a response to D.R. Schwartz and J. Marcus by Bruce W. Longenecker in the Journal for the Study of Judaism in the Persian, Hellenistic, and Roman Period. I hope these sources will be useful for you as you learn more about today's stories. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will join us again in two weeks' time.